think it's relevant to say that I just have a lot of love for activists and I just really want to affirm, you know, anyone who's made that choice to step up, take the responsibility for addressing something that's gone wrong in our world Mm. or move things in a more positive direction. I just think it's a wonderful instinct or Mm. movement that comes from within that Mm. when people do that, it's, it's a really wonderful thing to see. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say... The will to act is itself a renewable resource. Welcome everyone to Climactic episode number 49. My name is Bronwyn and I'll be your host today for another conversation focused on the intersections between climate change and self-care. You are about to meet Holly Hammond, founder and director of Plan to Win, an organisation that focuses on activist education and strategy and Plan to Win's sister organisation, Plan to Thrive, that focuses on building inner and collective wellbeing. With over 25 years of experience, Holly brings such a wealth of wisdom to our movement, and here you'll hear how she has evolved to sustain her own action and her resounding determination to capitalise on both her rational, strategic self with her emotional, caring self. Now, as you get to know me, you'll probably click on to the fact that I like to focus the conversation on stories of self-care, resilience, and personal sustainability. So sometimes that means we miss hearing about the significant contributions to action on climate change. And for Holly, there are many. So I invite you to jump online. Her blog posts are a library of essential and timeless resources on building movements, storytelling, facilitation, and more. So check out the links in our show notes. And we will definitely hope to have her back on the program later in the year to share her latest adventure, co-convening the International Gathering of Activist Educators in July this year. So get comfy and enjoy this episode. Welcome, listeners. I'm sitting here with Holly Hammond, and she has welcomed me into her beautiful home and also headquarters of Plan to Win. Welcome, Holly. Thanks, Bronwyn. Holly, let's think. Three things about yourself. How would you describe? Activist educator, revolutionary, and Care Bear. Love it. Now, (laughs) listeners are going to want to know about this Care Bear business. Can we knock that one off first? (laughs) Well, I did grow up, you know, through the 80s, and I guess there were Care Bears as part of that. But it's actually a term that I remember people using during Occupy Melbourne, people who were playing a support role, playing an emotional support role uh, for people involved in Occupy Melbourne. And so I think that often is a role that I play in social movements of loving activists, showing care to activists, supporting people to think Mm -hmm. through how they engage in change while looking after themselves as well. And that's certainly how I think of you and one of the reasons that I was really happy that you said yes to this conversation. Let's walk back a little bit and have a conversation about how you got into this role, Mm. how you chose this path and uh, what led you here. Sure, it actually goes quite a long way back, I guess, and we can often trace 
you know, catalyst to childhood, and I, I guess it'd be a bunch of that. But I've been um, politically active since I was 15. So wow. um, when I was at high school, I first started getting involved in activist groups and involved in lots of different kinds of campaigns and organisations around social justice and the environment. As um, a 15-year-old, how did you get into that? Well, I, you know, I had socially progressive parents, but really I also had my own realisation that there were a lot of problems in the world and I just had a really strong sense that things could be different and that I wanted to be part of making that happen. Mm. And it was during history class I heard a small amount of Marxist theory from each according to their ability to each according to their need and I was like, oh, that's what I always thought. And it kind of opened up for me like, oh, people think things can be different and there's other models for how the world is set up and doesn't have to be about some people profiting at the expense of others, you know. So I took myself off to the library. Wow. I'm a granddaughter of librarians, so it <laughs> felt very natural for me to do that. Yeah. And when I did a bunch of research around politics and, you know, wow. found different approaches to social change and kind of got on the path towards that. So. Wow. Um, yeah. That's quite extraordinary for a 15-year-old. Yeah, I guess I've always been a nerd. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose interested in engaging in the world and had a sense of my own ability to have influence, which is something I did get from my parents. You know, they really encouraged me to think big and mm. to think that I could do something special in the world and I didn't have to live a conventional life. So, Were they messages that they gave you consciously and deliberately or were there certain experiences that made that feel like you could really make a change? I think they modelled it. So my dad was uh, an architect and he did a lot of work in the community housing area. So he was working on setting up housing cooperatives and designing women's refuges and different kinds of socially good projects. And he was self-employed. You know, um, A message I often got from my parents as I was growing up was that you didn't let money get in the way of you doing things, which is an easy thing to say when you're middle class. So my parents were from a middle-class background, but they had done a lot of things on the smell of an early rag in a bit of a countercultural, downwardly mobile way. Yeah. So mm. when I was very small, my parents were building a houseboat in London. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad was working with um, squatters' unions, you know, wow. looking at tenant participation in housing design and that kind of thing. So I had some models that you could live life in different ways and was encouraged to be creative about that. And it sounds like your parents were quite open about sharing what they were doing as work because so often you hear you growing up and you're like, I've got no idea what my parents are doing. Was If I was sitting at the dinner table in Holly's mm. house growing up, what are you, is, are you a family that's talking a lot? How do you know what your parents are doing? And oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, certainly we did the focus at dinner was encouraged like, to be there and to converse, but also... My parents are workaholics, so my dad is certainly always was a workaholic and so his work really defined things. So yeah. there would be kind of the question, of like, what is dad doing? But also sometimes I would be in his office when he was having after-hours meetings with people who were going to be part of a housing cooperative that he was doing design work on. So I got to see that process happening. Wow. Um, and my mum was involved in 
committees and organisations working on homelessness issues and that, that yeah. was things that we heard about. Yeah. Uh, and my mum had some connection with the women's movement too, which was had an influence on me. So, mm. you know, when I was quite young, we went along to a Reclaim the Night march. I remember she got a postcard in the mail as part of a Greenham Common circle going around the world where people were sending postcards on around women in the peace movement. Oh, wow. So, you know, those things were you know, part of my life and Certainly had those books on the shelves. Books are an ongoing theme for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, As I can see, just looking around me, there are beautiful bookshelves from floor to ceiling. There's a lot of books in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So your parents were quite welcoming of you into their workspace. You didn't walk into your dad's office and get scolded. You were, you were welcomed in and in, invited to just participate or observe. I guess so, yeah. I think he was also very focused on doing what he was doing. So, mm. yeah, but I remember going to different kinds of things in that space. When I was growing up, his office was actually just around the corner from where we lived as well. So it was all kind of in the same area and mm. and then actually lived in a place where, similar to how I live now, having my work space mm. in my home, mm. he, downstairs was his office and upstairs was my mum and dad's house and mm. I had a little granny flat out the back. So. Mm. Yeah, it's all quite integrated, I suppose. Mm. Speaking of grannies, mm -hmm. what did your grandparents do? Yeah, so my dad's parents came out to Australia to set up the WA State Library System. Where did they come from? Uh, from Manchester in, okay. in England, yep. Yep, when my dad was about 10 years old. Yep. My mum's parents, her dad was a mechanic who was also ended up having a soldier settlement when right. my mum was growing up and then became a diplomat later in life. Wow. Yeah, and her mum, I guess, was a homemaker. Yeah. You know, but, you know, had been, uh, they met during the war when she was working like te telephony, I think. So. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm. Mm. Maybe we should tell people what, what are you up to at the moment? Maybe mm. tell listeners a little bit about Plan to Win and. Sure. So there's Plan to Win and there's also Plan to Thrive, which is kind of the sibling project. So Plan to Win is the work I do around training activists, campaigners, community organisers uh, in a range of different areas. So strategy, organising skills, setting up good groups, uh, all the different kinds of things that people need in order to function well and move towards collective action. Yeah. And Plan to Thrive is focused on activist well-being. Mm. So that's uh, a blog where we share different articles and resources, mm. occasional workshops where we showcase different approaches to activist well-being, and really just trying to make a bit of a cultural intervention in social movements to say it's good to look after yourself, it's good to prioritise your well-being, that we can live well, you know, and we have it in the, the name that we talk about yeah. and that we get to thrive. What year did you start this? Okay, so Plan to Win started in 2011 and yep. Plan to Thrive would have started uh, the following year or year after that. So Plan yeah. to Thrive, like you described it as kind mm. of the baby, the sibling, mm. and it was it came after the Plan to Win concept. What was the, that journey? Sure. Well, it's actually a little bit around the other way. So when right. I first decided to be, become an activist educator, some of the first workshops I'd run were around sustaining activism. So it was really something that I saw as an issue in social movements. And I mentioned before, having parents who tend towards workaholism yes. is something I was kind of really aware of in yep. terms of balance, work-life balance. And Had you seen that become out of balance? 
Sure. Yeah. And our whole society around us and amongst activists, definitely. And I worked in the community sector for a number of years as well. So I was used to seeing helpers running themselves down Mm. with a focus on the needs of others. So it's always really important to me to show care for people and Mm. kind of hold out alternative ideas and give people time and space to strategize around living well. Was there a tipping point or a critical moment where you had these ideas brewing but that you thought, I've definitely got to get into this space, there is an absolute need? So there's two kinds of decision points, I guess. So one is when I decided to focus on activist education. So that is about building capacity and addressing needs in movements and needs that individuals had. Often the source of burnout is being out of your depth and being in situations where you don't have the skills to address the issues that you're trying to work on and that Mm. feeling of overwhelm. Mm. So the urge to want to support people to skill up, I think, is kind of related to well-being. Mm. Uh, But definitely in terms of plan to thrive, that was really a a decision to kind of carve out a separate space, especially for that work. So when I was doing Plan to Win, you know, I felt this bubbling up in me that I had a lot to say around the issues of sustaining activism and activist wellbeing. And I didn't necessarily want Plan to Win to get overwhelmed by that. Right. And one thing I'll sort of name around that is being a woman who plays a caring and helping role, I feel like I can get really stereotyped in that space. Yeah. And so really it was a bit around navigating sexism. Like I still want to be viewed as a strategist and someone who has hard thinking to offer. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but I wanted to create a space that really prioritized that well-being mm. work and invited others in. Mm. So Plan to Thrive actually started as a collaboration with Helen Cox, who was one of those people who had been involved in Occupy Melbourne mm-hmm. and had a real health promotion worldview that yeah. was really valuable. And so we got together and cooked up Plan to Thrive. Mm. Uh, she's since moved on, moved back home to Aotearoa, but I've worked with other people, uh, Suze Sholem, these days is working on Plan to Thrive events. Mm. And last year, Laura Gilmartin did a bunch of work on the blog as well. So, And it's a collaborative blog, so lots of different people have written for us and we've also done interviews. It's about kind of opening a space where others can kind of come in. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. And do, do you have any kind of stories that you can think of just off the top of your head? Sorry mm. to give you any planning for this one. <laughs> but just stories of what you might have observed and how people do uh, trying to tackle something as huge as climate change and just that sense of responsibility and unrelenting demands. Mm. Does any story come to mind around that journey, how you do come to a point where you realise you need to look after yourself as well? It feels like it's um, confirmed and reinforced all the time to overextend ourselves. So it's hard to pick out kind of one story because I've sort of seen people do it over and over again in different ways. Mm. But I think climate change, back when we had that real explosion of climate activism or these climate action groups setting up around the country kind of after an inconvenient truth had come out, mm-hmm. I really noticed firstly just how impressive it was in terms of people taking that responsibility. Like mm. I really love how activists take responsibility for something mm. that is really big and mm. does seem so overwhelming, but people step up. They're like, mm. "This, I have to do something about this. And so it was just really wonderful to sort of see that energy. Mm. And then, you know, hard to also see not too long after that, people really start to hit the hard feelings. So I think that often we talk about burnout as being about overwork and there is a real, really strong element of that. 
you know, always much more work than there are people to do the work. But I think it's been more people being overwhelmed by the emotional impact of uh, focusing on climate change. And certainly in those early days of the takeoff of the grassroots climate movement, people were very focused on the science and putting a lot of time and focus into learning about the problem Mm. and then getting quite consumed by it. Mm. And then inevitably there's also conflict between people about the right way forward. People get really scared about Mm. this big, big problem Mm. and then fixated on what the right thing to do about it is Mm. and then come together in groups and end up having conflict with each other and it's not being able to keep that in perspective, Mm. so kind of losing the scale around it. So I remember these like large national gatherings of the grassroots movement. The first day people would look elated that they were connected with all of these people who were just like them, who cared about the same thing they did. The second day people are ready to rip each other's throats out (laughs) because this person wants to let the world burn, even though it's just a different approach to change that they're working with. Of course. So through observing that pattern, you Mm. know, that uh, not just intra-psychic kind Mm. of difficulties within ourselves but also that between people within the movement yeah the the challenge of I guess in my mind diversity and how Mm. you work with different ideas yeah with people who are very passionate with an issue that is very raw Mm. and just that strong emotion interferes with our ability to think clearly you know and I've often thought oh those gatherings would go better if we had team of care bears a team yes. of people who could give quality listening to people and help them think things through maybe touch a mediation from time to time you know sit a couple of people down together and let them actually hear each other and so I'm really conscious that our sector of people who support movements is quite small in Australia and so always really happy when people do step up to play roles that are around support and nurturing and mm. developing and skilling mm. like like you've been doing you know, mm. thinking about climate activists and how to resource them in a different way. Yeah. So what's your journey into the Care Bear role? Mm. Because it, it sounds like you, uh, with your interests and curiosity and the parental influence and grandparent influences. You could have gone in lots of different directions, but you went Mm. into the caring direction. (laughs) Who influenced that? I have the caring direction, but I have the other one as well. You do. Sorry, and I am mindful that I don't want to stereotype (laughs) you either. Well, I will make sure the record (laughs) is correct. So I think like carrying the two. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting working with activists because I would want people to look after themselves because just inherently they're good and that's right yeah but generally activists are really motivated by the the end product the outcomes they're trying to achieve in the world Mm -hmm. and so in some ways it's like trying to leverage that motivation into like greater self-care so I feel like some of the resources that I share around planning for your well-being are really informed by the work I do around campaign strategy yeah if you want to get to this place you have to have a plan to get there and the same goes for you and your body and your emotional well-being and the clarity of your thinking and I've written articles as well which have been oh here's all this stuff that we talk about in community organizing theory or practices that we have as organizers this is how we can apply them to own goal setting around health yeah you know, so I, it's interesting the way the two actually intertwine they do very yeah. much so and even as you're speaking just so that I can remind myself but your hand gestures <laughs> on the one hand is one component on the other hand is the other but they're very much fluid and interacting with each other mm. uh, because one informs the other 
Yeah. But I guess the risk with two things is it can polarise and then you can get stereotyped, as you were saying, into one category versus another. Well, I just want to have it all and I guess that's what I'm holding out to everybody. You can have it all, Holly. (laughs) You've got it all. (laughs) But it's also, you know, when we come to be strategising, okay, well, how do we think about the people who are involved in this? How do we Mm. think about the ebbs and flows of the campaign and the kind of emotional energy impact they're going to have? Mm. How do we build that into thinking about our group culture is very interlinked. Yeah. I mean, you're working on this every single day. I can imagine that there's some element of the work that trickles into your day, unless you're on holiday, where I hope you can switch it all (laughs) off. (laughs) Or holiday or monthly mini breaks that I take. Oh, that's fantastic. Or the different things I do to to live well. So you practice what I preach. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Has there been, I guess I've got two questions. One is, what do you feel like at this point in life is the biggest challenge around climate change? And then the other question is, yeah, how do you look after yourself? And mm. Or has there been a time when it was really tough and you had to take a huge break? Yeah. Mm. So I think the thing that I kind of realised with working on climate change and my, my own feelings that kind of got brought up around it and what I noticed from other people was it sort of really seems to touch like life and death stuff. Yes. And we have we have different experiences around that. For myself, like I have an early experience where I almost died, mm. but I feel like I like fought to live. So mm. I kind of have a like quite a can-do approach to lots of things. So mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, there's a giant challenge. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> the <laughs> biggest giant challenge probably that where, any of us could face is yeah, life, life where, and death where, Whereas I think some other people yeah. have experiences where big scary thing comes up for them. Yeah. Maybe they're in a place that is feels less powerful yeah. or go into paralysis more or yeah. go into denial more. You know, there's yeah. a, that good stuff in the transition handbook about people's end of suburbia moment, you know, and some yeah. people want to head to the hills or some mm. people want to deny it in a particular way. You know, we have these different ways of responding. And that, so, that's informed by, yeah, you know, early traumas. Now it's time for Climactic Community Corner, where we play voice messages sent to us on Facebook. We're opening up this space for the community to share events, news, thoughts, feelings, all sorts. If you've got a message to share, just send it to us at Climactic Show on Facebook or hello at climactic.fm. Hey guys, it's Kat from Trash Bags on Tour coming to you again with, yes, another amazing tour coming on Sunday the 31st of March. This time we're heading out to the beautiful Grampians National Park uh, where if you come on board, you will learn about some of the Indigenous culture and heritage out there. Uh, We've got some beautiful hikes, we've got some wildlife spotting and, of course, the all-important clean uh, in the town of Halls Gap. Uh, which the local council and uh, people are really excited to for the group to come up. So if you're looking for something fun and wholesome to do on Sunday the 31st, check us out on Facebook, Trash Bags on Tour, on our events page, and you can find the link to the tickets there. Hope to see you there. Cheers. You know, it might yeah. be a bit tricky because it's very early in life. It's like 14 months old. So, oh, my God. Yeah, so little, it's very formative for me, but some yeah. other people can be like, how can that really, you know, oh, really? life? I don't know. 
You're a psychologist. Judging so. people. <laughs> Judging people. You won't be listening. Though. What happened? Um, so I was born with a form of spina bifida. Okay. So I had a hole in the base of my spine that was undiagnosed until I started to grow more and there became more issues. Mm. So I was very unwell. And, yeah, so I had emergency spinal surgery when I was 14 months old. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it was a big, scary experience in my family and for myself. And, yeah. But I think there's something about like kind of coming through that and yeah. maybe also, you know, having to function yeah. in a hard situation that sort of set me up to be responsible and self-reliant later in life. So yeah. probably my main growth edge has been to like notice that other people can think yeah. alongside me, yeah. notice that it's okay to not take on responsibility or have a break or yeah. like have more fun and yeah. so I've been doing a lot of work actually healing that early trauma huh. and you know here in my 40s I'm getting to relax way more than I ever have and kind of live with a lot more lightness and joy mm. so that's kind of been my trajectory whereas for some other people mm. maybe like getting over past hurts might mean that later in life they're ready to shoulder a really massive responsibility so. mm. <laughs> <laughs> you've kind of shouldered the responsibility Probably even before 15 years old, it sounds like. <laughs> it was leading up to the 15. Yeah, I was, I was pretty serious. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wonder too if the uh, impact of that, like for your parents having to go through that, I guess I'm just relating it as we always do to ourselves, but just mm. having little toddlers at the moment and just the thought of having to go through something like that is quite life-changing mm. and the outcome being so positive how that does instill such a solid sense of things can be okay, that things can get treated, that mm. that you can face really challenging situations and come out, I guess, with that growth element. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak for my parents, but I think one thing that is interesting is that often people think of small children as not yet people and so think of a time like maybe before people can remember things as well, if within your own memory, oh, I can't really remember things from that time, so therefore it won't have any impact on them. But, you know, I must say this like, had a really big impact on my life. So Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, and uh, where our minds might not remember, our body mm. does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, so, we yeah, definitely start trauma, even sure. in, in the womb is where we begin. Yeah, um, definitely. Mm. i just say one other thing yeah. around the climate change, like, I think when I yeah when I started to really think about climate change and have big feelings come up about it, I could also trace that quite easily to my childhood feelings around nuclear war. You know, so growing up in the 80s, I remember my primary school teacher asking our class, who here thinks there'll be a nuclear war in your lifetime? And over half of the class, we put our hands up and I put my hands up. You know, we, we really wow. We thought that was going to happen. Yeah. You know, what did you so, think was going to be the result of the nuclear war? Uh, like a nuclear winter, possibly massive annihilation, yeah. a few survivors, rebuilding society, you know, yeah. and um, apocalyptic kind of, kind of visions which often come up around climate change as well for Absolutely, me. Absolutely, but that's yeah. kind of before many of the movies, isn't it, around apocalyptic outcomes? Yeah, I think it would have been a bit in the popular culture and I remember there's that amazing Raymond Bradbury graphic novel that shows a quaint little couple in England with nuclear fallout and just totally ill-equipped to handle it, you know, and this wow. was in my my library. Yeah. You know, so, again, I was all about the books and I was often reaching for things that were kind of above my age range. So, mm. yeah. And so just linking that back to how that informs your experience of that mm. life-death component that climate change can bring up, 
does it mean like that you feel more sensitive and attuned to the fragility of life? I think sometimes I have the feeling, oh, this could be a golden age. So what comes beyond here might not be as comfortable or beautiful as now you know and I'm often very struck by that I've been finding time in nature incredibly healing but there'll be sometimes when I'll be having time in nature and I'll think oh will it be like this down the track so there's something really bittersweet there Mm. Um, yeah I think that's something that a lot of people might be feeling but not articulating or Mm. potentially connecting with that knowing because it's it's an anticipated loss I guess how do you how do you sit with that? How are you? How do you bear that that idea, that sense that things might not be the same in the future? I think noticing how life persists is important to me. So kind of thinking about uh, just the resilience that is in ecosystems and in life around us and in people as well. And I suppose I I do think about my role in terms of supporting the growth of social movements and is also about supporting the growth of community and connection between people and that those are the things that we will need as we experience greater challenges in the Mm. environment. Yeah, so kind of connecting with resilience, my own personal resilience and and that and what's around me, you know, the life force that's around me. Do you ever get faced with the argument or counter position that it's not going to be that bad, we're not going to be any worse off, things aren't going to change that dramatically, you know, that I guess in my mind it's denial, Mm. but also acknowledging that we can't foresee the future. Yeah. What do you do when you're faced with that kind of, or are you faced with that kind of? Well, I don't interact with a lot of people. You know, I feel like I am quite surrounded by people who have quite a lot of awareness around the issues. So I might be a little bit in the bubble in that regard, but probably I also wouldn't seek out those conversations with people that much. But I can relate to it too, because there's a part of me that keeps that, like kind of operates with that thinking just by going in my day-to-day life yeah you know so For me, I, I'm not it, I'm not necessarily casting forward and thinking it's all going to be brilliant but I'm just living I'm not living with the ever-present apocalypse in my face as yeah. well there's a little way in which it's almost like I buy myself time that things are, that are okay so I can I can understand why people have that psychological resistance yeah. I guess you're very much living in the present. Mm. For me, I feel like it's often a wish. Like I, yeah. I'm wishful that we won't exceed 1.5 degrees of warming, for instance, mm. but the part of me that's trying to accept the science, mm. I can see how it's going to be anywhere up to, like up to six degrees. So yeah. it's, it could be huge. It could yeah. be, and yeah. that's, that's yeah. the terrifying mm. thought. Yeah, definitely. You know, in my role, I'm a facilitator where I need to be thinking clearly while I'm around people who have a lot of knowledge around climate science. And Mm. I find I'm preparing to be in a space like that. I'll have feelings around climate change come up in in the lead up and I'll set up extra counselling for that time. And I'll have some big cries about my fears around the world, state of the world, and try to be as present as I can to hold space for groups that are kind of doing that, that thinking and work but I do feel like oh when I'm around a bunch of people who maybe are more scared than I am because they're looking at it more directly than I am I it kind of rubs off on me and I feel Mm. that impact so it's Mm. kind of like there's both preparation and there's recovery in Mm. order to Mm. play that role it's gonna be tricky where did you learn those skills of how to look after yourself 
Sure. Talking about there in terms of counselling. So really early on, I started doing reevaluation counselling, which is a kind of radical peer-to-peer form of counselling that focuses on emotional release and Mm -hmm. has a, a way of thinking about you know, early hurts and how to heal from them. Mm -hmm. So that was a really massive resource in my life and that was both one-to-one with people and in um, support groups and often constituency-based support groups. So young people, young adults, different class-based groups, men and women. How Um, did you learn about this? How did you? My best friend told me about it. So, yeah, when I got involved in yeah, left-wing groups in high school, made friends with someone who was already doing this co-counselling. Ah. She had a great analysis of young people's oppression, which was really useful for me as a high school student to be like, wow, this is how I'm getting hit by ageism. There's ways that people think about this and there's people who have a different concept around the power of young people and why we should be respected. You know, it was really mm. appealing to me. Uh, and then there was all these other kind of aspects to it. And I think it really helped for me that there was a liberation focus to that approach rather than it being very, really individualistic. So it fitted with my approach to social change to be like, Mm. oh, right, this is actually about how we heal from oppression. So I kind of feel like through that process I got a lot of space to think through like how sexism was impacting on me, Mm. how my class background had shaped me in different ways and Mm. both in terms of strengths and limitations that I could look at and being able to also think really big. So certainly in those 20 to 30 in that 20 to 30 age group, I was mm. in a support group of people of the same age and it's a time when we really get pushed into a particular path in life or mm. because there's a lot of pressure that we have to decide what we're going to do and we've got to like slot into the system in some way. Mm. And a lot of what we would do would be around setting goals for our lives that about kind of taking charge and thinking big and obviously that made, that made a huge difference to my life in terms of what I thought I could do with my work. So this was something that you would be participating in quite mm. regularly for a few decades by yeah, the sounds of it. Yeah, yep. fantastic. And I've also more in recent times had uh, like professional therapy as well mm. uh, with therapists who has an ecotherapy focus, so has an understanding around climate change and, mm. you know, thinking about those impacts. So that's also been really beneficial. So any kind of work, self-understanding work, but not with the individualistic focus per se, but on how generations and cultures and systems can influence us as individuals. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes in activist circles you'll hear people being really critical of self-care and saying, oh, it should only be about collective care. And it's like, no, we actually still really need the self. We need to know how to fight for ourselves and we need Mm -hmm. to know how to put ourselves first in a bunch of different ways. I'm keen on a systemic understanding because I think that's actually really empowering to understand how we're impacted by all these different social forces and how we can get clear of them together. Mm. But in that, it's not also about kind of throwing the self under the bus. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a very dialectical approach. <laughs> You've got, you know, the yeah. self and the system and they're mm. not mutually exclusive. No. They, they're shaping and influencing each other and we need both. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Is there anything you want to say about self-care mm. or collective sure. care or plan to win? Mm. Anything that we haven't kind of spoken about that you feel sure. like would be handy? So something that's been really important for me has been kind of reviewing and reflecting on how I'm going and then making decisions about how I want to go in the future. So that's really been often do it at the end of the year, do a review of my previous year, how have I been feeling in that past year, 
I noticed a couple of years in a row, I'd often write down overwhelmed. <laughs> it's like <laughs> really? a key feeling that I was having. And this was me running like this very self-directed project uh, consultancy where I was putting myself under quite a lot of pressure and I had a lot of different expectations and needs that I was trying to meet. And so this is not sustainable. How do I want to do things differently? So I have had a number of years now where I've set things up really intentionally for myself to address that. I mentioned before, I have a commitment now with my partner that we have a mini break in nature every month. And that's been incredibly good just to, I notice I haven't had as much uh, chance to start revving, you know, when we we start to really speed up. I kind of have this pause where I have this time in nature, I have good connection with my partner, I get kind of connected back with myself, yeah. have a bit of a deep breath. Um, what would that and involve? And kind of come back refreshed. What kind of, are we talking a weekend? Are we talking yeah. an hour? What What are you, what's yeah. the break? It's a weekend or a long weekend and it doesn't even need to be very far away. Finding just a place that has access to trees, preferably a little bit of bubbling water Mm -hmm. uh, makes a big difference for me. And uh, I found, yeah, solo time in nature really good and healing for myself. Um, You know, just notice how my heart rate slows, my breathing deepens, my mental state calms right down. So, you know, doing that on a monthly basis, but also just trying to find ways to get to the local park or the local creek and, you know, listen to the birds, um, notice the trees, and that might be more like uh, I've done it where I've ridden my bike down to the creek and set a timer for 15 minutes, Mm. and that's been a real shot in the arm. Mm. Mm. And can I just ask how many overwhelms you had to experience (laughs) before you came to this new commitment? Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like uh, definitely being a cycle in my life and I, I would, it was good to be able to sit in those, mecha- set up those mechanisms to notice it. And there were times where I felt like I wasn't ever going to be able to find my way out of hitting that overwhelm. And I really noticed when I did my review of last year, I hadn't felt that. I actually felt, I used this approach to goal setting that I came across from Daniel Danielle Laporte, where you focus on your core desired feelings. And so last year, my core desired feeling was relaxed. And I noticed, yeah, I had felt much more relaxed. Like I'd set things up that had led me in the direction of relaxed. And then I also noticed in my mind, I had thought this was some kind of trade-off where I wouldn't be able to deliver on all of my commitments and I'd have to pull back from lots of work. And I actually realized I'd been incredibly productive and it's, it's a really false binary uh, yeah. You just read my mind, mm. yeah, because it's something that I feel like people, is the story that people are told and that we do repeat in our heads is if we just rest, relax, slow down, mm. that that cancels out productivity Yeah, when we know that slowing down and relaxing can complement and yeah. yeah, it can speed things up even. Yeah, definitely. Contradictorily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Often when I'm talking to activists around this kind of stuff, I remember, I remember someone saying, oh, you're just going to tell me to do less and actually understand that people have like big things they want to achieve. We want to create big change in the world, understandable that we're going to really throw ourselves into it. And I think you can have those periods of going all out, yep. but you've got to factor in the recovery time. Yeah. And I think what I've been doing more for myself is pacing so that 
I have the stamina to mm. push myself harder at times when I need to. Mm. So I've already got the, the well there to draw on. Mm. And then after that, I also have the rest and recovery time. Mm. And uh, it used to be that it took me quite a while to relax. Mm. You know, it took quite a lot. I'd really have to set the conditions up. Yeah. Um, and then kind of have a chunk of time for it. And I've found I'm much quicker at getting to that relaxed state now because I've set it up as a regular practice. I think that's so good to know and so good to hear because it really busts the myth that if it doesn't work one time, it's so easy to give up because it's not rewarding, but mm. it's just it's almost like trying to hold on to the wisdom that if you continue to do this, it will over time generate change yeah you know, change in the body and the soul and mind definitely yeah. there's that ad campaign about every time you quit cigarettes you get better at it which I, yes. I think is a really good reframing because people will say oh I tried to quit and I couldn't and often I would talk to adverts and I say oh, I'm just not good at self-care no I'm, I'm, I'm rubbish at looking after myself and mm. it's like well it's like anything it's a muscle you can develop you know there's things that have set me up in my life to be you know an overachiever <laughs> a workaholic and I still I do really relish my work and I put a lot of priority on it. But also I'm really great at relaxing and mm. that's a skill that I've kind of built in myself and, mm. and a decision I've made, you know, to set things up to allow mm. for that. And, you know, I think this year's called as I feeling is more like joy because oh. I'm like, oh, you know, smashed, relaxed. Now I'm ready, <laughs> now I'm ready for like <laughs> The high achievers coming in. <laughs> <laughs> Any other things that you think would be helpful to that you wanted to speak of? I think it's relevant to say that I just have a lot of love for activists and I just really want to affirm, you know, anyone who's made that choice to step up, take the responsibility for addressing something that's gone wrong in our world mm. or move things in a more positive direction. I just think it's a wonderful uh, kind of instinct or Mm. movement that comes from within that mm. when people do that it's, it's a really wonderful thing to see and I think that compassion that I have activists extends to you know wanting us to live well and show care for ourselves so mm. yeah and you can really see that sitting here you're so generous humble and it's just been such an honor to talk to you and just the where we're sitting is just <laughs> Yeah, this is this is you. I can see it now. Yeah. Thanks, Bronwyn. Yeah. No, it's exciting, you know, that we get to do this with each other, yeah. with all these other people, great yeah. people, and we're all contributing the strengths that we have, you know, and the yeah. things that we figured out. So yeah. I'm really excited to see what comes next for you as well. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So people can check out Plan to Thrive at plantothrive.net.au. Uh, follow us on Facebook for regular updates. It's a nice thing to get coming through your newsfeed to, as a bit of a contradiction to all the messages that are freaking you out. Uh, just a little bit of a pause. A little day. bit of love. A little bit of love for you. And Plan to Win, is that mm. a separate Facebook? Yeah. Uh, plantowin.net.au. I haven't actually got my Facebook page set up as yet, but it is coming soon. But, uh, yeah, otherwise just, you know, get in touch. You can contact me via the website and always happy to hear from you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Holly. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our conversation. Before we wrap up, I'd like to try something new-ish and share a few of my current reflections. We recorded this episode six months ago, so I was struck by how what you hear on listening to something a second time and what you connect with completely depends on what you actually need in the present moment. 
For me, one of the threads that I recognised throughout Holly's life was spending time in reflection, that it was in those moments of pause that she could consider how she was feeling and how she would like to feel, and that this awareness was knowledge that enabled her to assert her influence and control the direction she wanted to go in. I know for me that in the absence of time to reflect, how blind I can be to the accumulation of stress fed by the unrelenting pressures that we are immersed in. So thank you, Holly, for showing us and reminding us of the fruits of balancing action with reflection. Another message that resonated with me on this listening was around personal limits of engaging and how our life circumstances can change our capacity to engage, that sometimes we need to pull back from the intensity even though we wish we could push forward. For me, this life circumstance was becoming apparent. So when I was listening to Holly's childhood journey, I was pleasantly reminded of the influential role parents play in shaping their little human beings. So to all our fellow and future parents, aunties and uncles, grandparents and significant others out there who feel the pressure of not doing enough, of carrying multiple responsibilities, I hope you keep this in mind too, that you and me just being there, showing up for our kids, telling them what we care about, teaching them how to be kind, how to speak up, how all life is connected that that is having a profound impact. We may not see it yet, but it is. Seeds are being planted in the ecosystem of the mind and a rich, lush, lively forest will bloom. You've been listening to Climactic, a podcast from the Climactic Collective, a group of storytellers dedicated to sharing inspiring, powerful stories from the climate change community. If you've got a story you'd like to tell and you'd like us to help you share it, just get in touch at hello at climactic.fm or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Climactic Show. If you enjoyed this program, please tell a friend. Independent shows like ours need the help of our listeners to grow. And if you had the time to leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, we'd greatly appreciate it. The Climactic Collective is Mark Spencer, Rich Bowden, Maxine Baisley, Georgia Scheel, and Bronwyn Gresham. Our producer is Hazel Fidicaro. Thanks for listening, have a great day, and we'll be back with another story next week. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.